This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Open your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to James 2. James chapter 2. And this is a dicey passage of Scripture. I've just been looking forward to this. It is just dicey. It is controversial. People have split and argued and probably punched one another over this passage. None of that's going to happen here today. But uh, it is a passage that's uh, going to take a little splaining, that's for sure. So James 2, we're going to look at more verses than we've ever looked at in the whole book and probably that we ever will look at. Um, That way I can skip the parts I don't understand and still comment on the ones I do. So, James 2, 14 through 16. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body... What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you, uh, just even approaching this text, we thank you that you speak with one voice, that your word is unified and true that it is coherent and inerrant, and we thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture and what it says to us today. We pray that we would understand it. We pray that we, as we study through, that we would get your point. We pray that we would apply your point, and we pray, O Lord, that you may be lifted up in our midst as the one who justifies, as the one who grants new life. Lord, I, I pray particularly for any false professors that would be in our midst, Lord, those who perhaps think they have faith but really lack genuine saving faith. We pray for any of us in that way that, are, that, you, would, that you would grant new life to folks in our midst this morning. Pray for the next generation of young people in our midst, that, that uh, Lord, that there would be genuine faith resident in their hearts, saving faith. So, God, we need you this morning. We ask you to speak and to clarify and to challenge and to change us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
James is talking here in a context. There's, there's a context to what's going on in this passage where he makes these statements that is, is critical to understand. And I think the context is, is one that's important for us to understand. And I think the burden of this text is one that's important for each of us as individuals to understand. I think it's particularly important for us to understand this in the midst of the culture we live in as well. Um, I just finished reading a book about Christmas. A little early, I know, but I just finished reading a book about Christmas, and it's not really a book about Christmas. It's really a book about Frisco, Texas, because it's a book uh, that was written by an East Coast journalist who came here on three different Christmases and experienced Christmas in Frisco, Texas, and wrote about it. And what it really is, is it is a description of the culture in which we live. And one of the lines from the book, which became an enduring theme in the book as he evaluated mega malls and mega churches and, and people in our culture, what, what was a line that was delivered by a, a very likable lady that he spends a lot of time with interviewing, and she has a business that she um, decorates homes. She lives in a gated country club community in Frisco, and she decorates people's homes who can afford her. So she will come in and decorate uh, the inside of a home. She doesn't hang lights on the outside, but she'll come in and put up your Christmas tree and decorate it and put stuff on your mantle and this sort of stuff and charge between $400 and $1,200. So he is interviewing her, and he travels around with her. He works for her for a Christmas as, as her elf, helping her out. And he, uh, he's talking with her one day, and he says, you know, I've noticed that these large houses that you go into, that, um, uh, that no one has a real tree. They're all artificial trees. And... Uh, do you ever decorate a real tree? And her line is, no, describing Frisco, she said, no, fake is okay here. Fake is okay here. And that becomes the title of multiple chapters of the book describing our area. Fake is okay here. And he begins to give lots of examples of where fake is on display. And I, I, I began to think about that and thought that that's probably true somewhat of our culture. It's probably an unfair broad brush statement as well. But there's probably some truth to that. I mean, folks, after all, here are a little bit too friendly here and a little bit too perfect and a little bit altogether. And uh, just externally, life here seems to be a, a little bit too much like paradise. You've got to be able to scratch below the surface and touch some reality. And while fake may be okay with someone who smiles a little bit too much and a little bit insincerely, and fake may be okay with over-the-top decorations and sort of a glitzy, synthetic holiday season, that that might be okay. But one place that fake is definitively not okay is with regard to our faith, which is another point of the book, that fake faith is resident where we live. One place that fake is not okay ever okay, is never a minor deal or a small concern, or that's just the way those people are. One place that fake is never okay is with regard to the nature of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we can sort of become a little bit familiar with a religious culture and a religious environment where many people make verbal profession to believe in Jesus, where many people know the story, where many people identify with Jesus even, but it's never okay to have a faith that's not genuinely sincere and real. And that is the point of this section of James's letter. He has been warning against empty, worthless religion. 
He says that pure religion is a religion wherein the word has been implanted in our soul. That is, we have become Christians. We've been brought forth to new life by the word of God. And from there, we are beginning to to live a life that reflects a changed heart. To live a life in ways like being a hearer and a doer of God's word. To have a change in our speech. To have a change in our heart for those with needs around us. To welcome people regardless of their socioeconomic status equally with with a gospel-loving welcome that we are to treat others fairly and not to show favoritism based on certain likes or dislikes or preferences with regard to age or wealth or gender or race or habits that we find annoying and habits that we find endearing. And so he is talking about all of these things saying real Christianity must be expressed in ways that aren't just giving lip service to religion. That is the heart of what James has been talking about now for uh, roughly a chapter or so. And so at this point, he is, he is beginning to make a more theological argument that has to do with the same point that he's been making. And the same point he's been making is that real faith is seen through real works. Real faith is seen through real works, and fake is definitely not okay. His description of this entire topic is found in verse 14. He he starts with, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, we ask a couple rhetorical questions here. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Well, the implied answer is, it's no good. It's no good to say that you have faith and do not have works. Now, what he's not saying is that it doesn't matter if you have faith. He's not saying that it doesn't matter if you have faith in the gospel, faith in Christ. He's saying, what good is it if someone says he has faith? His concern is with the false professor, one who professes with his lips, who says, I believe in Jesus but then doesn't have a life that demonstrates faith without works, doesn't have a life that demonstrates he's really met the Savior. See, claiming faith and genuinely having saving faith are two very different things. Saying one has faith and genuinely possessing saving faith are two different things because genuine faith will produce life change. And fake faith, faux belief, creedal belief will not produce life change. So the first question is, is it any good if someone says that he has faith but not, does not have works? No, it's no good. Second question, can that faith save him? The implied answer is no. That faith cannot save him. So what is that faith? Well, that faith is faith that is not accompanied by a life change, that is not accompanied by works that demonstrate the gospel has taken root in the heart, which is what he's been talking about for verses now. It, it's, it's just a verbal faith, that faith, a bare faith that just says, I believe, a naked intellectual faith that just gives assent to God and maybe even a sent to Jesus Christ, to an agreement that with what he's done, a surfacy, shallow, meaningless faith that just consists of maybe praying a prayer to ask Jesus in my heart 
who knows what in the world that means, but just ask Jesus to come into the heart as a child as if the primary need is some kind of deficit or gap that needs to be filled up. So just inviting Jesus into the heart as a child with no grounding in the gospel, no understanding about the atonement, no understanding of Jesus' death as a substitution for one's sin, but sort of just making Jesus my cohort, my friend, my companion. That kind of faith that just sort of, just sort of doesn't really grasp, doesn't really believe, isn't really grasped by the gospel, isn't really grasped by the Savior, but is sort of an hollow faith. The faith that I've heard tragically described as that of a Dallas Christian. I mean, I've heard that phrase used. A doubt. What is a Dallas Christian? Well, it's one who verbally says they believe and attends church and is pursuing morality and family values, but lives like everyone else the rest of the week. That person, can that faith save? The faith that never takes root or makes any difference in the person's life? James would say, no. And so it's important to note at the outset, James is contrasting two types of faith. That faith and saving faith. Can that faith save him? No. There's that faith, which is empty, meaningless faith that never produces a life of life change, but just a verbal prayer prayed at some point, and perhaps ongoing um, mental belief in Jesus Christ, but never having the Spirit of God grant new life to a person. That faith, can that faith save him? Well, no. And then he illustrates, and he's going to give four windows into what saving faith is or what saving faith is not. He's going to give two negative examples, and then he's going to give two positive examples. He's going to start by giving two negative uh, examples. And he starts with, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, verse 15, and you say to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So what he's saying is, if a tragic situation, a brother or sister, this is a Christian, perhaps someone in the fellowship there, so if someone next to you, sitting next to you, has pronounced needs, basic needs, survival needs, food and clothing, someone next to you has survival needs, and you're aware of those needs, and you can meet those needs, then it would be meaningless to just sort of give a well wish, like, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled. Well, how can they be warm and be filled if they don't have any clothing or food? You understand? So he's saying, if you just sort of give a verbal statement like, hey, I hope everything works out for you. You know, I, I know you're hungry and naked. I hope you find some clothing, and I hope you find a good meal. You know, let me know how that's going. Good luck, you know. He's saying, then your words are meaningless. You don't really want what's best for them because you have an ability to help them and you're not doing so. And he says that's what faith is like that's just verbal but doesn't issue forth in life change. There's no progressive sanctification that's taking place. There's no growth in holiness. There's no increasing uh, desire to know God, serve God, worship God. He's not talking about a life of perfection, but he's talking about a life that is increasingly demonstrated by a heart and attitudes that produce godly Christian works, sanctification. So he's saying that would be no good. That faith is not a saving faith. In fact, it's not alive. He says, 
Uh, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What kind of faith? Well, the faith that's by itself, that doesn't really have gospel belief, that isn't really a changed life, but is just mental assent or something like that. God's truth here is that real faith is seen through real works. Now, he introduces this anonymous speaker in verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. That's kind of the first negative example. You have faith, and I have works. He's introducing someone who's, in essence, I, we don't know if this person's really existent in, in the church that he's writing to, but it's a mentality that, you know, sort of there's differing ways to God. You have faith, that's your way. I have works, that's my way. As if faith and works could be sort of separated in the Christian life. As if faith and works could be divided like, you know, I live my life just by faith and someone else says I live my life just by works. James is wanting to make the point here that ultimately in the Christian life, in the Christian life, to determine if someone has true faith, they are inseparable. We're not talking about becoming a Christian here, but we're talking about who really is a Christian, who really has saving faith. And the person who says that, well, they can be sort of divided up, that there's differing ways of relating to God, you have your way, I have my way, that that is not a genuine faith. He says, I show me your faith apart from your works. If there's no difference in your life, if Christ has made no difference in your life, if there's no cherishing of Christ, no valuing of Christ, no desire to please him with your life, no desire to obey his word. If you're not obeying his word in increasing ways, or at least when you fail, you're asking forgiveness and repenting and seeking to pursue him. If that's not going on in your life, if you are stained by the world, as he says earlier, that is you have the same thoughts, the same desires, the same goals, the same mindset, the same purposes, the same lifestyle. You spend your time, your thoughts, your money, your hobbies, your free time without regard to Christ, but just like someone in the world, if there's no change in your speech or your heart for others or your marriage or the way you relate to your parents or the way you do your job, if these things are not being affected and being changed by the gospel in your life, then how can you say you have any faith? Show me. Where does it show up is what he's saying. And he says, in turn, I'll show you my faith by my works. He's not making a boastful statement here like, man, you follow me around for a week with a video camera, and you will see WWJD, because that's what I'm doing all week long. He's not saying that, but he's just saying there has to be some evidence if it's genuine faith, demonstrable evidence, because faith without works is dead. I mean, implied faith that is active will produce works, faith that is alive. So so I will show you my faith by my works. Someone has said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. In other words, once we are converted, it is not as if we have a bare mental faith that we live by, but it is faith that is accompanied, it is faith that produces, it is a faith that brings forth a life of works, of good works, godly works. And that is what James is concerned about everywhere here, that it's not just a saying, a slogan, a club. We're not just part of a social club here. It's not just a conservative lifestyle. 
It's not just family values or wanting to be a moral person. It's a faith that encounters Jesus Christ in the gospel, wherein the Spirit of God changes us from the inside and makes us a person who is doing works. We're saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Real faith is seen through real works. Now, the next point he makes, kind of the second window here, is, is, is really shocking. He says in verse 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You believe, even the demons believe. Even the demons give a a, a mental assent to who God is. They intellectually have an understanding of God. They intellectually understand the nature and the person of God. And so he's saying that you you believe that God is one. You know, here, Israel, the Lord our God is one. You believe that truth about God. You believe what the Bible, mentally, you believe what the Bible says about God. But you haven't responded to that. There's a lack of response. Actually, it's the faith of demons and maybe worse than the faith of demons. Because the demons shudder. At least the demons respond to the holiness of God in some way. They don't respond with repentance and faith. Saving faith would include repentance and faith, a response that's believing in God, a mental assent, an an assent of the affections and a remorse for sin and a desire for a Savior, the assent of the will, which is giving oneself over to Christ and following Him. I mean, saving faith is is full-orbed. It's not just mentally saying, yeah, I believe God is one. Yeah, I believe Jesus is God. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for sinners. It's not just just an external statement of agreement because the demons pass that test. But even they respond and shudder. Whereas the person who is inoculated with the gospel, the person who is familiar with the nature of God to some degree and the character of God, yet has never really responded with belief and trust leading to a life of following Jesus, that person is not, he's saying really sarcastically, wow, you do well, you do what the demons do, congratulations. I mean, it's in essence what he's saying. That person is not converted. They have a faith just like the demons if there's no measurable response. Saving faith and the nature of saving faith is a serious concern for James. It is a serious concern of God who is writing through James. It is a serious concern of Jesus. Jesus talks about this topic on numbers of times in the Scripture. He he talks about, for instance, the the four types of soil, that when the Word of God goes forth, that different hearts will grasp it in different ways. And some hearts will even appear, appear to have faith, will even appear to sprout up and grow. You know, until difficulties, the cares of the world, those kinds of things come into life and it dies out. But there will appear even to be folks who have responded but ultimately haven't responded. And he follows that story with another parable. The parable of the four soils, he follows that with the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Or when I grew up, I guess it's King James, we always said the wheat and the tear. Um, and, uh, but the wheat and the weeds is what the ESV says. And he says that someone comes in and sows some weeds among the wheat and that they grow up together. So in the crop, there is the genuine article, wheat, and there is weeds growing up right with it. 
They share the same spot. They grow up together. And he says, at the harvest, which will ultimately be the judgment, the wheat and the weeds will be separated one from another. So right now they're together. They're growing up together. They're they're taking up space on the same pew together. They're perhaps sitting in the same small group together. So they're, they're doing life together at some level, but some of them are the real article, genuinely regenerate, and some are not genuinely regenerate. And it's a warning passage. We find this throughout Scripture. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. I mean, this is a test right here that James is giving us a test, not the only test, but one. That belief is not mere intellectual assent like the demons, but it is something that makes a difference. Christ makes a difference in our lives. He reorients our lives. He reorients our mind and our affection in varying degrees and over time. I don't want to overstate what's being said here. Um, We're not talking about some extreme maturity or, you know, uh, extreme holiness of life that is farther beyond than anyone you know. And we're not talking about that. We're talking about life change that leads forth to godly works as the Scripture defines works, uh, defines works, obeying Christ, obeying God's Word. So Jesus is concerned about this. James is concerned about this and is writing at length to debunk what it is to be a hearer and not a doer, what it is to be a sitting in a meeting and now thinking one has faith, but maybe it's not genuine. What it means to, to participate in worthless religion versus pure religion, true religion, as he says. That, that's what his concern is here. That should be our, really, that should be our concern for each of ourselves, that we should be concerned that, God, I've examined myself and tested myself. I, I want to genuinely believe. I want to genuinely trust in you. I really want a life change. I really want to have encountered the gospel and be regenerate by the Spirit of God. Has that happened for me? That's a fair question that we shouldn't be afraid of. It's not a legalistic question. We're talking about the gospel. Have I believed what Christ did for me? Am I relying on what Christ has done for me? And it's what he's done for me making a change in me. It, it should be a concern for the next generation. It should be a concern of every parent in the room for every child in the room. As a matter of fact, it should be the primary concern for our children. The goal of parenting is that our kids meet the Savior, that they be regenerate. The goal of parenting is not nice kids, smart kids, athletic kids, musical kids, well-rounded kids, polite kids. The goal is not to raise a kid that's outwardly polite. I mean, the goal, and I'm not being flippant here, the goal is not to raise the nicest kid in hell. That's not the goal. Rather have a raggedy kid in heaven. I'd rather have a kid lacking some polish in heaven than a polished kid where fake is okay because they're morally okay externally from what we've seen, but have never tasted the saving power of Jesus Christ. They just know the rules. They know how to play the game. They know how to get by externally while their heart is far from God, while there's no genuine affection for God, there's no genuine desire for God. There's no genuine desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no genuine desire to know him, to pursue him in his word, to commune with him, to tell others about him, to serve his people. There's no genuine, self, not self-sustaining, God-sustaining desire. It's just hanging out as a church kid because that's what mom and dad does. That's not the goal. The goal is that we all encounter 
Christ. And we can be, I think we can have great confidence that the next generation, that God will regenerate them, that God will grant new life to the next generation. That is my expectation as a parent, and if you're a Christian parent, that's the expectation I would give you. But that comes through the means of communicating the gospel and talking about things like this and considering real faith and not real faith and leading them to examine themselves to see whether they be in the faith and us participating in that as well. Listen, this would be on a short list. This whole passage would be on a short list of my concerns for us as a church. Not because I think we have a bad methodology. It's not like I think we've got like half the room's unbelievers here. It's not because I think that. But it's because I know the human heart. And because Jesus talks about this. And James is spilling a lot of ink on this and making strong statements to people. Like you've got demon faith. I don't know what stronger he could say. I mean, if we're going to have any integrity in reflecting the truth of this passage, I'm going to have to speak about this with some degree of passion and concern. If we're going to mirror what James is saying by the Holy Spirit at all, So it's a concern. It's a concern for me that we would be in an environment where things are not so black and white culturally and where the Dallas Christian idea can happen and it can be acceptable. It's concerning to me that I not be alert about that, that I not be concerned about that. And we dare not say, well, yeah, that's what happens in megachurches. But we're not a megachurch, and we don't have glitz and glamour and all kinds. We're, we're smaller. We've got a new members class. You've got to be in a small group. So we're going to avoid all that by our methodology. Boy, we're not relying on our methodology. We're relying on the preached word. We're relying on the work of Jesus Christ. We're not going to say the problem's out there in those types of churches because the problem's not out there. The problem's right here in every human heart. So my concern is that we would ever define ourselves differently as this is not something that we really need to be concerned about, like the false professors. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was concerned about that. You're not going to get a better preacher than that around here for sure. No one even in that league. And he was greatly concerned about that. Throughout church history, this has been a tremendous concern that individuals not just be weeds among the wheat, regardless of what their age is or their background. And I think it's particularly challenging in a religious environment. So we dare not buy into the arrogance that says, oh, we're apart from that. Because we do this, that, and the other. That we're not touched by the things of the human soul. Now, we will try to have a methodology that tries to be faithful, that tries to have a regenerate church membership, that asks people about their testimony, and tries to, uh, as pastors, we try to secure a realistic profession of faith before admitting someone into church membership. So we do take that very seriously. But he doesn't say, you know, skip this section of Scripture if you've got a good system of church membership. Not like everybody's going to, every weed is going to be weeded out through an interview with a pastor. So it's just important that we all be aware of this, not in a fearful way in terms of um, fleshly anxiety and worry, but in a fear of God way, saying it's a sobering topic. So Lord, help us. We don't want to be false professors because on this one, fake is definitely not okay. Well, he moves from the two negative passages, like dividing faith and works, you've got faith, I've got works, and the negative of um, just intellectual belief like the demons. Then he moves to two positive ones, two positive pictures, um, and he's going to do that with Abraham and Rahab. Look at verse um, 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? 
Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, that verse is the most controversial verse in the whole book, and certainly one of the most controversial in the whole scripture, I'd say. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And here's the problem, or the apparent problem. In Romans 3, Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So James is saying here that, do you not know that we're justified by works, and Paul is saying, do you not know that we are justified by faith apart from works? So how do we understand the two together? Okay, context is just key here. The context of James is going to be very key, and then we're going to look at the context of Genesis, then we're going to look at the context of Paul, and then we're going to come back to this passage. This is not a rabbit trail that I'm going to take you on in the next five minutes. It's very necessary, but I just want to give you, as as your guide, a little bit of where we're headed on this one. James is never saying, and should never be understood to say in this book, that salvation is by works and not by faith. That's not what he's been communicating. He has emphasized in fact, that faith is necessary. He has emphasized that, that, we, that his concern has been that a faith apart from works, can that faith save him? That has been his concern. His concern has been genuine faith versus insincere faith or dead faith. That has been the concern all along for James. Now, Secondly, we need to understand what he's communicating in this Abraham situation. Because what he does is he gives us two pictures from Abraham's life. He tells us in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac on the altar? So that's one picture from Abraham's life, the father of the faith who offered his son Isaac on the altar. And then the second picture from his life is verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, And it was counted to him as righteousness. Here's the challenge, just reading this on the surface. He gives us two pictures from Abraham's life, but he reverses their order. He reverses their order right here. The first picture from Abraham's life, Isaac on the altar, is Genesis 22. The second picture that he offers from Abraham's life, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, that's Genesis 15. And so if we start with the first one, which is the second one in order here, a lot of stuff is cleared up very easily. When he starts talking about Abraham, if we just go back and read Genesis, a ton is cleared up right there about what James is really saying. The first picture he gives is Genesis, I mean, is uh, verse 23 here, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That happens in chapter 15, and when God takes Abraham out and says, look up at the stars. See all of these stars? That's what your descendants are going to be like. In other words, there's going to be an innumerable amount of descendants come from you, a people that I'm going to save just as I'm saving you. There's going to be this wonderful nation that's brought forth. And then it says in verse 6 of chapter 15 of Genesis that Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness, that at that point Abraham is made right with God. 
not by his own works, but he's made right with God by believing the word of God, by believing the promise of God that what God is going to do for him. And so Paul takes that event. In in Romans 4, Paul says that we are made right with God by believing in the gospel, ultimately, just as our father in the faith, Abraham, was made right with God. How was Abraham made right with God? That's what Romans 4 says. He was made right with God because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul takes that illustration of what happens with Abraham and he's using it to make an argument to say the way we are declared right with a holy God is by faith in him, faith in what Christ has done for us and not by works of the law. So he's using the word justify in Romans 4 and elsewhere. He's using the word justify to mean to be declared right with God. We're sinful, God is holy, we stand before the throne, and he declares us right with him based on what Christ has done for us. When we believe in Christ, we're declared right with God. That's called justification. So, There's justification, Uh, Abraham is justified, if we want to say it that way, in Genesis 15, when he believes God and is declared right with God. Because of what he did? No, because of faith, and faith alone, but not a faith that is alone, as we're going to see, but it was by faith alone. Paul is addressing in Romans 4, when he makes statements about Abraham, how we get in how we become Christians, how we get right with God. What's our starting point? Our starting point is to trust in Jesus Christ and to be declared right by faith in Christ because of what he did for us, dying for our sins and obeying the law in our place. That's how we're right with God. Now, in Genesis 22, when Abraham offers Isaac up, it's seven chapters and 40 years later. He's already been declared righteous before God. How was he declared righteous before God? By faith. That's what it says there. That's what Paul says in Romans 4, what what, uh, happens in Genesis 15. He is right with God. He has gotten into relationship with God by God calling him and by him responding through faith in God. Now, back to James. Was not Abraham, verse 21, our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. When he offers up Isaac on the altar, he is demonstrating his faith with God. Wow, that's what this whole section of Scripture has been about. That God calls him to offer up the child which is the promise. That God calls him to risk. That God calls him to rely. That God calls him to trust God alone as a believer already, by saying, the child of the promise, I offer him up to you on an altar of sacrifice. So God calls Abraham to this incredibly stretching event, this incredibly demanding call, this incredible sacrifice. He's already a believer. That's what's so important to note here. And then when he offers up, is willing to offer up his son, you're probably familiar with the story, there's a ram in the thicket, the ram is substituted, the son is is allowed to live, Isaac. When that happens, then James here says that Abraham is justified by his works, that his works are a justifying act. Now, the only way I think to understand this ultimately is that James is using the word in a bit different way than Paul does. Paul uses the word to speak very clearly about our being declared right before God. 
how, does, how can you say James uses the word differently? Because all we have to do is read the preceding 20 verses. What is James talking about? James is talking about faith without works is dead. James is talking about you say you have faith, you say you're right with God, you say you're in, you say you're regenerate, you say you're part of the church, you say you're a Christian, then your, your works will demonstrate that. And he's pointing back and saying Abraham had real faith. He was declared right with God by trusting God. And that was shown. That was demonstrated. He, his faith was justified. It was on display. It was shown in its sincerity by offering up his son. The context dictates so much because his whole concern here is not how to become a Christian. He's not talking about how to become a Christian. He's not saying if you do something sacrificial like Abraham did, you'll be right with God. No, he will say Abraham was declared to be right with God in Genesis 15, and he was demonstrated, it was demonstrated that his faith was real when he offered up his son. It's an example that flows with the context of the passage. They're talking about two different things. He is talking about faith without works is dead. He's talking about pure religion, which shows itself forth in works, versus worthless religion. He's showing the difference in being a hearer and a doer. They're looking from two different vantage points. When Paul talks about being justified as Abraham was, Paul is talking about entrance into the faith. When James is talking about it here, he's saying, no, you're already saying. That's what he said. You say you have faith. You're already saying you've entered in. Now, how do we know if you've entered in? Even our father in the faith, we knew he entered in because he he did works that demonstrated the sincerity of his faith. And thus, his faith was vindicated, might be a way we would say it. The word justification is being used like vindication or demonstration in the context of dictates that, both the context from Genesis and the context from James himself. I'd really like to pause for questions here, but I think I'm going to go on. I think <laughs> I don't think I've ever done Q&A in the middle of a sermon. That might be a good idea, but I think I'm going to go ahead. Okay, then he does the same thing with Rahab. You see verse 24, a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. This is a story from the beginning of Joshua. And the people are going to go take the city of Jericho. And so Joshua, in chapter 2, I think it is, sends spies into Jericho. They're going to spy out the land and see what it's going to be like to invade this pagan people. And they come to this house of prostitution. Uh, Rahab's a prostitute, and she houses them uh, in her place. And the king finds out there's some spies, and he says, Give me the spies that you have, Rahab. And she covers for them. She protects them so that they can be free and go their way. And so when they do the attack and take the city of Jericho, they save Rahab the prostitute because she has demonstrated faith towards God, and she has cared for God's servants so that God's plan may take place. Um, It is a great illustration because here's the father of the faith, and here's a disreputable Gentile. He's showing from the highest person that his readers would esteem to a person that his readers wouldn't esteem in the same category. It's still faith, and genuine faith works itself out and works. Now, if Based on what I just said, you could say, well, okay, yeah, Rahab is justified by works. You're saying that Rahab um, is okay with God. She's declared right with God because of this act of caring for the spies. But if you go back and read the passage with Rahab, 
when she cares for the spies, when she covers for them, this is what she says. She says, I know the Lord has given you the land. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Deliverance from the Red Sea, that is the ultimate, the Exodus is the gospel, the central gospel picture of the Old Testament. And she says, I heard that you were delivered by God. That's gospel. I heard that and I know that God's going to give you this land. I've heard the work of God. I've heard he's the only God. I heard he's a delivering God. I believe that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to protect the spies so God can take Jericho as his plan. She had faith before she did this work. It was her faith that was demonstrated by her work. It's the exact same thing as what we're talking about with Abraham. So Abraham and Rahab take great steps of faith because of their trust in God. Just as a body apart from the spirit, verse 26, is dead, so faith without works is dead. Real faith is shown forth in a changed heart that leads to real works. You can't separate faith and works in the Christian life and say, I choose faith or I choose works. Faith leads to works in the Christian life. We're created for good works, the scripture says. You can't just merely believe intellectually. That's what the demons do. And they're getting no bonus points for that whatsoever. It's not gonna, they're not going to change their eternity because they resist and have resisted God. There's no salvation for them. And then there's the picture of Abraham who believes God's promise and is declared righteous and later in his life is called to trust God in a powerful way and make a sacrifice before God. And he does that. And it shows that he had a real genuine faith. It wasn't a creedal faith that says, well, yeah, I kind of believed when it was easy, but now it's getting tough, so I think I'm going to go back. It wasn't. It was genuine faith. And same with Rahab. She did something that could have cost her her life by uh, harboring spies against her king's wishes. And she did that because she heard that God is the delivering God that delivered the people from Egypt, and he's going to give this land. And she believes in that God and ultimately risks her life to honor that God. And so they're saying, that's a real faith. She really was a believer in God. It showed forth from her works. Four pictures that make the same point, that faith without works is dead. And it's just a penetrating word for us, isn't it? Because we may know all about Christianity. We may know all about the Bible. We may know all about uh, the story. We may know all about evangelical Christian culture. But do we really know the Lord? That's the question. I remember when I was in high school, I I had a relationship with a teacher at school who was a Christian who happened to go to my church and happened to serve in our high school ministry. And uh, so he was a guy that I knew at school kind of formally as a teacher and out of school as as I knew him in a different way as a man who was a leader in our youth ministry and, a, and a, a man. And so I went through some evangelism training when I was in high school. And so one of the things is we each had to have a prayer partner. So we had to have someone that would pray for us each week when we went out and shared the gospel with folks. And we also practiced our evangelism explosion presentation with this prayer partner. So I picked my teacher. I picked my guy and voluntary leader in the, uh, in the youth ministry. And so I shared the story with him a number of times. Actually, this guy oversaw our Sunday school class. I, I shared the, 
story with him, and then I would tell him, hey, I'm going out, so pray here and pray there and just get in touch with him. Hey, we got to share the gospel, and this person responded, this person didn't, whatever it was. And so I finished up my senior year when that happened, and I got a call in my dorm room in college my freshman year, and it was this teacher. And, and he communicated to me. I was stunned. He communicated to me, hey, I've been in church all my life, and, and I've sort of known that I was just externally playing a game, going along, being moral, doing the right thing. But last year when you sat down and were going through the gospel with me one-on-one and asking me to pray, I realized I didn't really know the Savior. And that you're asking me to pray that other people will respond to the gospel when I haven't really responded. And I'm calling to tell you that I've given my life to Christ. I'm now a Christian. He's given me new life. He's regenerated me. And this is someone I knew. I didn't know him super well as a kid and he was an adult. But it just made an impression on me that because the guy was a leader, because the guy was present, it didn't absolve him by his external conduct from the need for a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, when James is talking here, anticipating, I I think he's anticipating that there really would be some people reading this that need to get regenerate, need to be regenerated by God. And in integrity, as I preach this, I'm not causing anyone, I'm not desiring anyone to sort of lose a genuine assurance in Jesus Christ. You won't. But I am, in the spirit of this text, saying church attendance is not sufficient. Leadership in the church is not sufficient. Service in the church is not sufficient. Knowledge, external knowledge about Jesus, is not sufficient. Telling someone else about Jesus is not sufficient. I mean, there'll be people, he says on the last day, that say, have we not done all these great things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. What is sufficient is genuinely seeing our need for a Savior and turning from our sin and turning to Jesus Christ with full of faith, leaning upon Him alone, not leaning upon religious duty, not leaning upon our culture, not leaning upon our heritage. Young people, not leaning upon your parents' faith. You will not be saved because your parents are. Not leaning upon the external rules and regulations. Not leaning on knowing what to say and what to do in evangelical culture or grace church culture. But leaning on Jesus Christ and Him alone. And I think when Jesus teaches the parable, He's anticipating that there will be some people that will come to Him, that some weeds will become wheat. And I think when James writes this, He's praying and trusting and confident that some people who have a false assurance will have that undermined, and the gospel will take its place, and they'll have new life in Jesus Christ. What great news. And so, in the spirit of Jesus and James, the Holy Spirit, I'm preaching today with the same anticipation. That whoever you are, if you have not trusted Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, and one evidence of that is that there will be a measure of life change in your thinking, your affections, your desires, your goals, There will be some measure of change to desire to obey God's word, however imperfectly, to desire to obey God's word and to be a follower of Jesus in your heart and with your works and not merely with your Sunday morning confession. And so if that is you today, I call you, God calls you. God addresses your soul and says, believe. Put aside your morality and your religious behavior and your heritage and your history and your Bible knowledge. You may win the Bible, the sword drill. Put it away and say, simply to thy cross I cling. You and you alone are my salvation. 
I need you. I turn from my sin. I need a Savior in you and in you alone. And God, save my soul. May your spirit indwell me. May you forgive my sins. I, I lean on you and trust you as my substitute. Change me. I need a Savior. And so the same call goes to all of us today. And lastly, the same call goes to all of us that this message is relevant at all times to all people. All the scripture is relevant at all times to all people. But I think the book of James is particularly targeted as he was writing to Jewish readers, not Gentiles. It's particularly targeted to people that know the stuff. He's writing to people that are steeped in religious tradition. And that's our culture. Knows the religious stuff. And so this message and this truth and this reality is part of God's mission to the people in our community. Now, there's people, plenty of people here that don't know the name of Jesus. I'm sure there's convinced atheists. I'm sure there's people walking around that have never heard about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in Frisco, Texas, and communities surrounding. I, I know that's true. But there are lots of people for whom evangelism is preaching the gospel and bringing the truth and undermining false morality, undermining external Christianity, undermining worthless religion, undermining a faith that is dead because it's a faith without life change, undermining false assurance, troubling those who are comfortable and should not be comfortable, troubling them with the message of a holy God and a day of judgment and a glorious Savior that saves us from our sins, troubling them who are comfortable in church attendance and reasonably peaceful marriage and decent kids that are getting pretty good grades and aren't saying bad words and are fairly polite and nice enough and a good job and a nice house and just substituting the American dream morality for a bloody Savior and a buried Savior and a resurrected Savior that regenerates hearts and changes people from the outside so that it's not about external stuff alone, but it's by a genuine heart change that leads forth to works of changed speech, changed attitudes, changed care for those who are needy, a heart of love for people that are different than us. Those are just some of the instances he gives. A heart that's been changed so that we want to love our neighbor as ourselves. Why? Because the gospel has changed the orientation of our souls. Not because merely it's a phrase that we learned in third grade at vacation Bible school that's never made a difference in our lives. That's the difference. That's the difference. We probably do live in a culture where in a lot of ways fake is okay. And truth be told, there's plenty of fake about fake about my life and about yours as well externally, I'm sure. But one area where fake is not okay is in our faith towards Christ. And Christ offers himself today and says, anyone who will come to me, I will never cast you away. I'll never cast you out. If you don't know Jesus, come, come, come to him with empty hands today, with a heart of faith, trusting him as your savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today that that there is a real faith because you're a real Savior. And there's a genuine faith because you are true and real. And you grant us new life. You forgive our sins. You give us new birth, Lord. And so we're so grateful for the new birth and for genuine life. We're so grateful that we're right with you. 
because of faith in Christ. But we pray that you would guard us from a false faith. We pray that you would guard us from presumptuous faith. We pray that you would guard us from just sort of uh, thinking we're okay when we've never really done serious business with you, thinking about our soul, thinking about the nature of our faith. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit we would examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith. We pray by your Spirit that we would heed the warnings of Scripture, which we find in so many places. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't move to a morbid, inappropriate introspection. Keep our eyes on the Savior, but keep us asking, are our eyes really on the Savior, we pray today, O God. I pray for our church, God, that we wouldn't be a people who profess with our lips something that's not really happened in our lives and in our hearts. Lord, we pray for our region, our area, Lord, for even the pejorative term, Dallas Christian. But Lord, we pray that churches throughout our region who are preaching the gospel would find themselves populated by genuine believers and that those who are false professors would come to faith and may it start here with us in our own families, in our own small groups, in our own church. God, we pray that real faith would work forth, be demonstrated in real works, Lord, we pray. So God, I'm just asking today that you would save those who need saving in this room, Lord. We don't know who that is, but shine your light and regenerate, bring from death to life young people, elementary age kids that are in this room, teenagers that are in this room, college students that are in this room, older adults that are in this room. Lord, we put, a, we put away everything on our spiritual resume today. And we say, none of it matters but you, God. And we just want to know you. So, Lord, do your work today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.